your Bibles, uh, open your phones if that's what you're using. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there should be some in the seats, underneath the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those. But I want to invite you to open back up to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Last week, uh, we started this new series uh, talking uh, through this book, and we said we're, we're kind of hitting it from this angle of who am I, uh, looking at our identity in Christ and all that is significant there. And we opened it up uh, last week just looking at the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 1. If you were here, I said that uh, this first section that Paul is speaking through is a beautiful uh, doxology uh, where he spends this time in one massive run-on sentence uh, kind of just gushing over the, the goodness and glory of God is in all that he has done for us. And so he's uh, talked about these many blessings. Last week I told you verse 3, uh, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture that in Christ, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what Paul is doing throughout the rest of this doxology is in some ways twofold. He's talking about some of these blessings, saying here are some of the blessings that God has given us in Christ. But he is also, if you will, giving us the evidence in which we have certainty that we have these blessings. That was the whole idea that he has blessed us even as. In other words, kind of seeing that he's done all of these things. And what uh, Paul is doing as we continue uh, today is going to continue doing just that, continue explaining, continue showing us uh, just all these wonderful things that God has given and continue to give us this assurance, if you will, uh, of our reception of these blessings. So if you find yourself in a place today or in life recently where you're just maybe uh, not feeling it, you're you're doubting, maybe you're struggling uh, to understand and recognize the, these blessings being true for you in Christ. Uh, I think Paul is, what he's doing is he's kind of giving us good reason to look beyond the circumstance, uh, to look beyond just the, the feelings that we have and, and have some assurance, have some hope uh, that these things are true for us uh, in our life. So Last week we talked about verse 6, so we're going to pick up in verse 7 this morning and talk 7 through 14. Uh, But last week as as we did this, I read the whole section, and I said we wanted to do that so we don't uh, miss the forest for the trees, meaning we don't get so caught up in tunnel vision on just a couple verses that we miss their significance in the context around them. So uh, we're going to talk 7 through 14. I'm going to read 3 through 14 again. So I invite you to uh, follow along with me in the Bible that you have in front of you. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Father, as we come before you and gather together this morning and open your word, may these truths hit home as we study it. Help us to leave some of the distractions of our lives aside to focus and to hear from you this morning. May you be glorified and may you be honored in the preaching of your word and in our reception to it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So throughout this whole passage, as I talked a little bit about last week, uh, Paul brings up this idea of being in Christ. And there's great significance uh, for us being in Christ. One of his major themes that he's going to kind of develop and continue to unpack as we study through the whole book of Ephesians. He, he really dives into this, especially here in the doxology, right? Eight times in these short... In this, one sentence, as he, this one thought that he had, he speaks of us being in Christ, being in Him, through Him. And so this theme is going to continue to be unpacked all about us. And it's that that I think, as you look at verse 13, he references this word of truth, this gospel of this good news of our salvation. Quite literally, here's, here's the gospel of your salvation. I think all of this is summed up in this idea of being in Christ. So as we talk about salvation, this great joy of being saved in Christ, I think one of the misconceptions that we often have about it is that being saved is just your ticket out of hell, right? That's kind of what we think about it sometimes. That I, Oh, I'm saved. That means I'm not going to go to hell now. I'm going to go to heaven. And I think what Paul is showing us here is that this salvation, this good news is is far more rich than just not going to hell. That's certainly part of it. Part of it is we have this hope of spending eternity with Christ in glory. But I think what he's showing us is all these things, all these blessings that God has given us in Christ paint this really rich and beautiful picture of what salvation life is really all about. And so uh, that doesn't mean that there's not practical results. As a matter of fact, I want to start and spend a good chunk of our time this morning uh, talking about the results of us being in Christ because that's what Paul kind of dives into. Here's the things that are true for you. Since you are in Christ, here's what's true. So, this gospel of our salvation begins in, in talking about the results. And, and first and foremost, what Paul is going to draw our attention to in verse 7. So if you're with me, uh, look at verse 7. Uh, he says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. If you will, the, the first result that we'll kind of talk a little bit about this morning is that the wrath of God in Christ is satisfied for us. Now, when we think of, in, in our modern kind of context, when we think of this idea of uh, redemption or redeeming something, and maybe one of the first things, especially coming off Christmas, uh, you get some gift cards, and you, you can redeem your gift card, and you, you set it up online, and you can spend uh, whatever money's given to you on it. Uh, we might think of, you know, NFL playoffs going on right now. I don't know if anyone's going to be watching those, but... Uh, You've got an athlete that could redeem themselves on the field. Let's say, you know, you, you really, so what yesterday? 
the Jaguars. Anybody watch the Jaguars game? Okay, so you got the Jaguars brutal, brutal first half, right? Really struggling. But you could say that they redeemed themselves when they came back and won the game, right? And so we think in some some ways through those lenses where I could redeem myself by taking something terrible that I've done and kind of fixing it and making it right, kind of making up for myself. I've redeemed myself. But when Paul speaks of this, He's got kind of a different uh, lens in which he's coming at it. As actually, when Paul brings up this idea of redemption, he's using he's using language that would have been very consistent with the idea of slavery. Now again, we have a context that we hear that. We we think of our nation's history, our nation's context, but uh, Paul has a, a bit of a, a, a cultural and historical lens that his audience and he's speaking through. So, for instance, we said that Ephesus is one of the most significant uh, cities in the city of Rome, or within Rome, right? And so, uh, within the Roman culture, slavery at that time was very, very prominent, Lots of people found themselves as slaves, and it was it was brutal. Uh, I mean, the the culture around that was very harsh. Where if you were a slave, you were nothing more than just property to whoever owned you. You you didn't have rights to own your own stuff. Uh, you yourself were property, and as such, if you were a slave in Roman culture, you could be uh, just abused. You could be mistreated. You could be sold anytime. You could even be killed uh, with little to no repercussions to your owner harsh reality but there's also the jewish background that in jewish culture slavery also was popular but it was kind of protected under the the jewish law so it would have been uh, common for let's say a jewish man to sell himself into slavery uh, to pay off a debt so uh, i was thinking i was like all right let's let's bring this down to earth so we've got uh, some people who've got farming backgrounds so let's just say all right kevin you guys you got your farmer right you got a farm let's say that i'm going to take out a debt with you like I'd love to get a truck. And so I'm going to say, Kevin, I'll tell you what, I will go and I'll work for you for 10 years if you buy me a new truck. So Kevin buys me a new truck. He says, he says it's a deal. So it's a good thing we're not signing on this right now. <laughs> so Kevin buys me a truck, and now I'm an employee of Drendel Farms for the next 10 years while I pay off that debt. That's the kind of the Jewish background. Now Paul's got people he's writing to that have both understandings. Some people are, are hearing this letter and they're looking at it through the lens of the Roman context. Some of them are have Jewish backgrounds and they're, they're looking at it through that lens. And in both of these circumstances, there is a price that could be paid to redeem the slave, to purchase their freedom, saying, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, Say Josh is like, you know what? Yeah, I see Jeremy's, he's really working his tail off for Drendel Farms, and I really want to help him out there. So Josh goes up to Kevin, he's like, I'm going to pay his debt. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> see, this is how you test where people are at. You know? <laughs> and you're there, and then now I'm, I'm no longer, I don't have to be a, a slave to Drendel Farms anymore. A price can be paid to redeem. Now, this is uh, familiar to what they would have been living. This would have been very popular for them. That's why Jesus, uh, Paul says that the price that was paid, though, for our redemption wasn't just an earthly price. It wasn't monetary. It wasn't materialistic. It was a price that was spiritual in nature, as uh, much of the book of Hebrews talks about. But we have redemption, the price being paid, the blood of Christ. That's the price that redeemed us from our slavery. 
That was common to all of us. For those who are in Christ, you were once a slave to sin, redeemed by the blood of Christ. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and even to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, uh, we could jump to conclusions with that and think, well, if Jesus gave himself as a ransom, if there was this payment that was made, uh, does that mean that Jesus, who, who did that payment go to? Did Jesus, did God make some payment to the devil to say, hey, the devil was holding us and he named the price and said, I will only let Jeremy go with, with the blood of Christ. It's not exactly the way that it works. As a matter of fact, the scriptures never talk about it that way. God's the one who received and approved of this payment. God's the one who was glorified. So I think... And I would like to encourage us to to consider the other biblical context to slavery and this idea of redemption that comes straight from Israel's history. If you were to go all the way back to the beginning, very early in their history, the book of Exodus, what happened to the nation of Israel? They were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And in Exodus chapter 6, God instructs Moses, who he sends as, as their redeemer, if you will, in that circumstance. And he tells him in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, Therefore, Moses, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And then it's so cool to see God step on the stage and do exactly that with an outstretched arm, right? And bringing the plagues and the, the deliverance of the people of Israel as they're, they're walking through the wilderness. You got the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire and smoke, all these wondrous things that God does to free them, to redeem them. Here, God doesn't pay a price to the Egyptians and say, hey, I'm going to buy out the, the nation of Israel. God steps in and through an act of his power, he redeems them and sets them free. I think that's a perfect context to what we're, what we're talking about here in Ephesians that Paul's bringing up because here God's people under the new covenant in Christ's blood have also experienced a similar redemption, a second exodus, if you will, right? Where Jesus has redeemed us from slavery to sin in which we were held bondage under the law, that's Galatians, by purchasing us at a price, that price being his blood that he shed at the cross, as he stood in our place, where he see, he received our condemnation, our punishment, where Jesus endured the wrath of God that was due to us because of our transgressions, so that we might be free. A beautiful picture that the scripture is not unique to itself. I mean, the scriptures are always pointing to this: that you go back to Exodus and say, "Look ahead." Anticipate. There's a deliverance coming. And here Paul's saying, it's time to celebrate because now we know what the deliverance is. We've been redeemed in Christ. So uh, that's where I want to draw that attention to that, that reality for us in Christ that our, the wrath of God has been satisfied in Christ when he shed his blood on the cross for our sins. And I think the appreciation, the true appreciation for that comes in us when we when we truly know who God is. Now, I'm not meaning that we just don't know who God is, but when we stop and and really consider who He is. And as we understand who He is, we begin to understand more of who we are. And then this picture of God's grace and His mercy just shouts off the page to us.
And I'm drawn to Isaiah chapter 6. If you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, it's where Isaiah shares his vision of the throne room of heaven. And he writes, and you can see it on the screen, he saw, he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, What was me? For I'm lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, in Isaiah's context, he's, here he's, he's witnessing the, the fullness of the glory of God, and his natural response is to say, well, holy cow, who am I? Suddenly he becomes so aware of the fact that he doesn't belong there. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. Because look at the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God. Who am I to stand in his presence? I am a man of unclean lips. I am from a people of unclean lips. I don't belong here. And then right after that, uh, one of the, the seraphim come and with a burning coal, they touch it on his lips and say, you, you've been redeemed, you've been purified. See, God is a holy God. He is a wonderful God. And as our uh, view of God increases, and we understand more and more in our maturity of, of just how wonderful and how great and how glorious and how holy and how majestic God is, then the realization of all that He has done for us begins to unfold more and more. Uh, Bill, I know a while back in, in our small group, we, you talked about C.S. Lewis, right? Aslan. And as... Um, this girl grows up, Aslan seems bigger and bigger. You're getting, no, it's as you grow, I become bigger. And that's the picture, right? That as we grow, as we mature in Christ, as we continue to see and understand in greater ways just how wonderful and great God is, suddenly we are also realizing, man, I, on my own, who am I? So we see God so great, but it shows also just how gracious and how merciful and how loving God is. Now when you're talking about Christ taking on flesh and laying His life down for us, redeeming us through His blood, you're like, what an act of love. That God doesn't just take us and just wipe us from the face of the earth, but He loved us in such a way to send His Son to redeem us, to restore us, to bring us into fellowship with Him. A beautiful picture. And in doing that, the second result of what we see of being in Christ is that the will of God is shown to us. The wrath of God satisfied for us, the will of God shown to us. Look at verse 8. He he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. And we'll talk about the, the verse 10 here in a minute. 
It's all as as Christ comes, as Christ died on the cross, as He lived His life, as He rose again. Suddenly, the plan of God comes into fuller picture. As we look at Israel's history and their slavery in Egypt, their deliverance, their wandering in the wilderness, their entrance into the promised land, all of it pointing forward to the true slavery of humanity, the true deliverance in the one true Redeemer, the true entrance into the promised land, which is eternity and glory with God, all of which is found and bound up in Christ. As if God is continually wetting the palate of His people throughout history. Look ahead. Somebody, something great is coming. And that's why Paul can say, now in Christ, the mystery of God's will has been revealed. And I imagine some of us say we resonate a little bit with that. I know I do sometimes, the mystery of God's will. You're like, yeah, I really wish that I could understand why God allows certain things to happen, why God does certain things. And, and I know I, I wrestle with that at times in my life. And frankly, I'm not entirely sure that that's what Paul's speaking of here, that mystery. I think there is still mystery to some of those details for us. But I think what he is getting at is uh, this hiddenness of God's plan of redemption. That uh, throughout all time, people are like, what's God doing? What's God doing? They're waiting, anticipating. And now in Christ, these things are like the aha moments. Right? First Peter chapter 1. Uh, on the screen, you'll see concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Colossians chapter 1, that the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is in Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So now today, we're not sitting here in, in church and in Shab and I'm saying, man, I really wonder what, when's God gonna finally send the Savior? How is God going to go, out, go about bringing us this salvation, this redemption? Now we look back and we say with clarity, I, I see it. It's all come to fruition in Christ. Now we're seeing the, the prophets. We're seeing the judges. We're seeing the, the nation of Israel and their history and all of this culminating in this one person. And we're like, it's starting to make more sense. The picture's becoming more clear. And that doesn't mean we have perfect understanding of things. But the mystery of God's will has been revealed in Christ. And yet, even as we look back through all of this, and I couldn't help but thinking, you know, part of Israel's redemption, right? They're, they're led out of the land of Egypt, and then what do they do? They complain, they grumble, and they fall short. And what, what's the result? Generations don't enter into the promised land. And it's like, okay, if this is a picture for us of our true slavery and deliverance, it, Maybe it catches our attention a little bit and is like, I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to not, I don't want to fall short and not enter into the land of promise. And, and I don't think that we have reason to be. As a matter of fact, I think what Paul brings up later in this passage gives us assurance for it that the work of God is sealed in us. In Him we've attained an inheritance, verse 11 have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of will, so that we who were the first to hope might be the praise of His glory. Verse 13, 
In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now this Christmas I got a pretty cool uh, Christmas gift that I didn't, I would have never thought to ask for. Um, it was a surprise to me, but I thought it was kind of unique. So uh, those of you who know me know I, I like to grill. I like to uh, smoke stuff in the smoker. I, I like to cook on the griddle. I, I like to, it's kind of fun for me to do that. And so my wife was like, here's a great idea. You know, one of my favorite things to grill is most people like this are steaks. You know, super delicious, wonderful things. My wife got me this fancy uh, little branding iron for steaks. So I can, uh, when I'm grilling something else, so maybe next time you're over, we're grilling something, you know, you guess you heat this thing up and you can... It makes it a little more intense because now, you know, I set a seal on the steak. I made this. I can't be like, you know, someone, maybe, you know, someone else made this steak. It's like, no, nope, it's me. And by doing it, I take the ownership... Right? I'm, I'm making this way more serious than it needs to be. I recognize that. <laughs> the ownership of that steak. I made the steak. Now, branding is one of those things that oftentimes used with cattle, still, still done a little bit out west, uh, these days, and, and it was done to kind of signify ownership of the cattle, right? So as, uh, herds of cattle would, would graze on public land and maybe they get mixed up a little bit, it'd be like, okay, I'm not stealing your cattle, you're not stealing my cattle, we can make sure everyone gets back to where they're supposed to be. It showed who belongs to who. But seals were also used, you might think of like those classic wax seals to kind of authenticate something. That in their culture, you know, with a a legal document, it would come with a seal on it, and that seal said, yep, it's legit, it came from Jeremy. This wasn't Dan saying, yeah, I'm going to pretend to be Jeremy and say something and have all these things happen as a result. No, this came straight from my desk. It's authentic. It's true. And I think both these pictures help us understand a bit of what Paul's saying. That you were sealed in the Holy Spirit. That in a sense, if you'll follow the analogy, the Holy Spirit becomes the brand of God that says, you're mine. The Holy Spirit becomes the authentication that your faith is true and genuine in God. The work of God sealed in you. There's, there's assurance for us in that. So the question then becomes, if the Holy Spirit is the identifier and authenticator of our genuine faith in God, the question is, how do I know that I've been sealed in the Spirit? Isn't that what you'd want to know? If that's all true, then how would I know that I've been sealed in the Spirit. And the Scriptures tell us that the proof is in the pudding, if you will. Right? The, Jesus himself puts it this way, that you know a tree by its fruit. Right? Now, Bree always wants to plant these fruit trees, and you know she'd like to plant all kinds of them, and if we had it our way, maybe we would. But you don't go to an apple tree and pick oranges. You don't go to a pear tree and pick peaches. Right? The tree produces fruit according to its kind. And the scriptures say that there is a fruit of the Spirit that we can identify in our lives. So if you've got your Bible open, I know in mine I just have to turn one page to the left, and you're in the book of Galatians. 
In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So, go back to that question. How do I know that I've been sealed in the Spirit? Well, you ought to be seeing fruit in your lives. That's why James chapter 2 says that faith without works is dead. Not that works save you, but because works are going to be a very natural production of faith. That if you have faith, it will show itself in what you do. So we look at the fruit of the Spirit. And you should be able to ask yourself and look at your life, do I see this fruit in my life? Do I see love, joy, peace, pain? Can I see those things? Maybe not perfectly, but do I see myself growing in those things? Now, I know I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm guessing you're probably similar in some ways. It can be easy for me to justify myself at times. I'm a pretty loving person, but some people, you know, they're just not very lovable. So it's not really my fault. It's on them because they're not lovable. I'm a pretty patient person, but when I'm driving down Route 30 and someone's going 55, it's not my fault. They ought to be going a little bit faster. And we justify ourselves. We can say, I think I am, but... So maybe another good evaluation would be, do other people see those things in you? That when my wife's in the car with me going down Route 30, does she say, dude, you are the last thing from a patient person? Or can she say, no, I I see patience in your life. I see joy. I see self-control. I see faithfulness. I see gentleness. Would your kids see those things in you? The people you work with? What about the people you run into just around town? Would they happen to say, hey, I see that in you, if you were to ask? I mean, you run into someone at the post office, they're probably not going to be like, hey, by the way. But if other people are able to look and say, hey, you know what? I see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It should be an encouragement. Not to become prideful, not to become arrogant like we talked about, but to be humble and say, Lord, thank you. To have hope and assurance that perhaps we're sealed in the Spirit of God. Not depending on ourselves, but depending continually and continually on Him. So we talk about the the results of us being in Christ. The wrath of God satisfied for you. The will of God revealed to you, shown to you. The work of God sealed in your life. Some great promises. And all of this, Paul says, comes together under one purpose. There's a reason for it all. And I've kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, so I'm not going to go into great depth. We spent the most time on point one, so if you're looking at the outline, you're like, dude, we've been here a while and we've only done one point. We're going to breeze through these last two pretty quickly. But one purpose, the reason for us being in Christ. Verse 11, Paul, or I'm sorry, verse 10, Paul brings to mind this one story arc of the Bible. Now, for those of you who know anything about Marvel, uh, we are not talking the multiverse. There is no multiverse when it comes to uh, God's plan and God's purposes. Paul says it all comes under one 
story arc. It's all, it's themed together. This being in Christ. That God has poured this out. He's lavished upon it. All of it has one plan for the fullness of time. Verse says that he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And so here what Paul is doing, instead of just looking back at what Jesus has done, he also looks ahead. Now in Galatians, uh, he talks about when, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. So at the perfect time, when it was set time, God sent forth the son. Now here, Paul is talking about the fullness of time. Is in when the dates of human history stop ticking up and time sees, and God brings all of this to a culmination, to an end, he says, that's when this one plan, this one purpose is going to be finally in its fullness fulfilled. And all of this being revealed and shown to us through the pages of scripture. So for those of you who are Bible stat nerds, it's 66 books written here, uh, making up this one book, written over, what, 1,400 or so years, 40 different authors, you know, lots of, of variation there, but one story. One story. And I've shown you, I think, this picture before, but Jake, if you could throw that up on the screen. I love this picture, and, and it might be a little bit hard to see, but along the bottom of this picture, you, you see all these different lines that are coming down, and they are alternated in lighter and, and darker gray, and those represent different books of the Bible. Genesis being on the far left in white, Matthew near the end in white, just to kind of show where we're at. And each of those lines that come down represents one chapter of the Bible, the length of it just depending on how long that chapter is. And this visual, I think, gives a great picture to this one story of the Bible. Those arches that you'll see all throughout the place, those are cross-references in the Scriptures, being uh, where names are referenced, where locations are referenced, uh, events, uh, direct quotes, allusions, all of those things where Scripture refers to itself. And they, they connect all throughout. And yet, as we zoom out and you see the whole picture together you see that there is one overall connection. It's all united. You know, the, the Scripture doesn't contradict itself. The Scriptures are, are working in unity with itself. Say, so, hey, listen, under all of this, there is one overarching story. It's one theme. So while it's 66 books, 1,400 years, and 40 different authors, it's one book, one author. One story. And all of it is, is centered around the person of Christ. I want you to listen and listen carefully for a moment. The Bible is not predominantly about you. When we read all the stories in the scriptures, we have a way of saying, I'm David. I'm, I'm, uh, Abraham. I'm all of these characters. And the reality is, is, is the stories of Scripture, everything that's contained in this book is, is united under the one story arc of bringing all things into subjection under Christ. This story, this book is about Him. We are part of that story. God in His infinite wisdom has brought us into that. We are part of Him bringing all things into subjection under Christ. But when we interpret the Bible as if the Bible is all about me, what you are going to do is you are going to grossly misunderstand and misapply 
the Scriptures. Because you are making them about something and someone that they were never intended to be about. But when we see and interpret the Scriptures under the lens that this is all pointing to Christ, this is all about Him, this is His story, then the pieces begin to fall into place. Then we begin to see the pictures and the places, and you're like, wow, it's coming together now. And it becomes easier to see our place in the story. So while there's details and of our lives that, that fall into place, I don't always know. I can't. I wish I could explain to you where all of that comes in, and I, and I can't. There's a mystery to that, where we trust and we follow God. But when we live our lives continuing the one story, the story that is about Him, for Him, for His glory, uh, under His purposes, then boy, that brings everything about my life into subjection to it. Seeing that the the prophets and the Old Testament, all of it pointing ahead to Christ. That's why Philippians chapter 2, that at one day every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a story about Him being Lord over all things. So for the plan, for the fullness of time, is to bring all things under the subjection of the Son. That's why Jesus... On the road to Emmaus, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, after he rose from the dead, he's walking with a couple of disciples, and you know they're like they're they're grieving and upset. They just watched Jesus get get killed, and here he's walking with them in his resurrected body, and, and he what? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, explained to them how all the scriptures were concerning him. It's his story. The Bible is not just about us. This one plan to bring all things into subjection to the Son. To unite all things in Him. Now, some people will say, well, this is that great, you know, this is the love wins. This is where, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's going to be fine. Everyone's just going to go to heaven. That's not what Paul's saying. That's why verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance that on that day we'll receive this inheritance that for now we've been sealed in the Spirit for it. So submit to Christ. Bow the knee to Him. Trust in Him. And all of this will bring us, and I just want to blitz through real quick our response then, because the rest of Ephesians is going to outline this way more. But just to leave us with something to walk away with today, our response to being in Christ. I've got three things for you, and I'm going to give you a fourth, just as extra credit. If you are here today, and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please do so. Please trust in His finished work on the cross where He bore God's wrath for your sins. Where He paid your penalty. Trust in His resurrection from the dead. Where He rose and defeated once and for all the power of sin and death in one glorious act so that He never again will taste death. So that as Jesus died and was raised again to new life, that you who are dead in your sins could be raised to new life in Jesus and have eternal life in Him. Don't leave today without making a choice on this. Submitting to God. that That's your bonus. Believe. That's why Paul says in verse 13, you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him. If you are hearing the message, I beg you, believe.
and follow him. For those of us who are in Christ, three quick responses, and you'll notice through our passage, they involve our praise, our practice, and our perseverance, because every good pastor has to use alliteration. Praise, practice, and perseverance. Four times in all this, Paul speaks to this doxology, these blessings in Christ, being to the praise of His glory. I talked about it a bit last week, uh, so I'm not going to deal with it in its entirety here. But all of this summing up to praise Him, to glorify Him, not ourselves. And as you have heard and will continue to hear from this pulpit and this church is that our worship of God does not limit itself to the songs that we sing together at church on Sunday. But our worship and our praise to God involves our practice. It involves how you live your life Monday through Saturday. It involves uh, your testimony in your workplace. It involves your testimony in the community, with your friends, with your family. See, God is after your heart. He is after all of you. That's why Paul in Galatians chapter 5, right before he talks about uh, the fruit of the Spirit, he says in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. This is, see, Christianity, guys, is not just one of those, here's a set of things you just got to believe and, and, and that's it. Go ahead and do your thing, but as long as you believe. Christianity is a rubber-meets-the-road kind of religion. A relationship with God in which He calls us to a new life. He has transformed the old. The old is gone, the new has come. Paul will talk about that. So it involves our practice to walk by the Spirit. And so I want to ask you just a simple point of application. Maybe you could write the question down, think about it, pray about it. Is there any area of your life right now that you have not submitted to the Lord? Something you're struggling through, a decision to make, a priority, anything in your life. Is there a place in your life that you have not yet submitted to the Lord? I'll encourage you this week to consider ways you might begin taking steps towards submitting it to Him. And it starts by saying, Lord, I'm having a hard time with this. You've called me to do it. I want to. Would you help me? It involves our praise, our practice, and finally, our perseverance. If the fact that the Spirit of God is your seal and guarantee of this inheritance, if that means anything to you, let it mean that you will stick it out. You will persevere in the faith. I trust that the Spirit will keep you. I think it's in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says uh, something to the same effect. He says, the Lord will do it. The Lord will keep you. And so stick it out in the faith. Whether you're in a good time in life, a hard time in life, anywhere in between, I encourage you to persevere. Stick it out with the Lord. He is there and He will carry you through the difficult times in life. In the confusing times of life, He will lead you and guide you. In all times in life, God will sustain you. So persevere. and Stick it out to the end. Was it Bill this week in small group? Were you the one who brought up that, that in view of eternity, these light and momentary afflictions, it brings things into perspective. You've been sealed in the Spirit. So as we walk away this week in worship, let us praise God, let us put our faith into practice, and let us persevere in the midst of whatever the circumstances life is throwing our way. Trusting that God is sovereign and Lord over it all. Let's pray.